First of all, just say thank you very much to Lo and Al for having us. Uh, it's such a lovely privilege to be here. Uh, what a delight, Nick and I were so excited when we were given the nod to come and be with you. And um, it's lovely to meet some of you and hopefully we'll get a chance at the end of this evening to make some new friends. Um, we're going to be sharing uh, a little message this evening from Genesis chapter 15. So if you would go there in your Bibles with me, please. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis uh, 15, we're going to read the first six verses together. And it it records uh, an encounter that Abraham had with God. And this encounter is kind of in the middle of the story of Abraham. He had had an encounter with God prior to this which we will look at later. And of course, God kept dealing with Abraham throughout the rest of his life. Much of the story was still to be told. But this was a key moment in the life of Abraham. And there is much that we can learn from these six verses. So let's read through those together and pray that the Lord will open our hearts, as Lo said, by the power of the Spirit. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, who was his chief servant? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir, this servant who was born in my house, Eliezer. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Maybe the Lord would say that to someone here tonight. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, Look now toward the heavens. Count the stars. If you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed in the Lord. And he accounted to him for righteousness. And as we work through these six verses together this evening, there are three points that I would like to make to you from these Verses. Firstly, that God makes promises to people. We serve a God who makes promises to people. Secondly, God Himself grants and then throughout life strengthens and until the day of our death sustains the faith that we require to inherit those promises. It's God who grants faith. It's God who strengthens faith. It's God who sustains faith. So we may receive the promises. And then thirdly, God justifies sinners. Like me and like you, my fellow sinner. God justifies sinners by faith alone. Apart from works. So let's look at those three points. Firstly, that God makes promises. You know, in the, um, 
in the 17th, uh, 18th and sort of 18th century, there was a, a major philosophical movement throughout the world called the Enlightenment. And it was really the dawning of a new age for the world. A new age of skepticism, a new age of disregarding the pretty much accepted beliefs of faith that had predominated in the Western world, certainly up until that point. But the Enlightenment brought an era in which people began to question the fact that you can even know God. It was an era in which a worldview known as deism arose. Now what is deism? Deism is a worldview in which someone believes that there is a God somewhere, but he's not involved in the world. He's not involved in our lives. He, he, He created the world and then he stepped out of the universe. He certainly doesn't enter the universe and act within the universe, which would require miracles. Because anytime God acts within the universe, contrary to the normal laws of physics and, and of nature, it is a miraculous intervention. And so when you're a deist, you don't believe in miracles. Miracles do not happen. Jesus was not raised from the dead. So all of the, the sort of traditional teachings of Christianity are thrown out the window And it is all replaced by some distant God who has absolutely nothing to do with our universe, who couldn't enter our universe even if he wanted to. Now, uh, many people may be tempted to think that today we live in a world that's predominantly atheistic. So atheism is the next step after deism. Atheism is, is when you categorically say, well, there is no God. And in fact, you know, all a deist is 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 someone who hasn't had enough time to become an atheist. Because when you reduce God to an irrelevant force that cannot enter this universe, has nothing to do with your life, pretty soon you're going to get to a point where you just say, well, I don't even believe there's a God. That having been said, the book of Romans is perfectly clear. Every single human being knows there's a God. And that's why they will be without excuse on the day of judgment. The Bible says that God has made human beings to know Him. We have a capacity to know God. The reason we can know God is because that's how God has made us. We are receptacles for the knowledge of God. Not only that, but He has put a witness of Himself in creation itself. The Bible says that we know God from the things that are made. Every time an atheist, so-called atheist, looks into the night sky and he sees the stars and the sun and the moon... In his heart, he knows there's a God. But he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Because every one of us are born with a rebellious heart, bent towards denial of the truth of God. You know, I did a study in the States recently, and I asked people, you know, do you believe there is a God? And surprisingly, most people today, even those who are the most ungodly and secular, still do believe there is a God. And when they're pointedly asked the question, they will say, well, yes, I believe there is a God out there somewhere, but you can't know Him, and He's not involved in our lives at all. Most people are actually still deists, because the witness of God is in their hearts, and they can't get rid of it. So they push Him to the outer limits of the universe, so that He can't have anything to do with our lives. But that, my friends, is not the God of the Bible. 
God of the Bible makes promises to people. He builds relationships with human beings. The Bible says that God has been pleased throughout human history to condescend, to humble himself in love for his elect, to come and make, build relationships with people, and he's done that predominantly through covenants. And in terms of those covenants, he has made certain promises to man. And that is exactly what we see in the life of Abraham. In fact, in the verses following what we read, we will see the covenant ceremony where the animals are killed. This is an ancient Near East covenant ceremony that God enters with Abraham. And as part of every covenant, God makes promises to the people that he's forming a special relationship with. God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. Adam broke that covenant. God then made another covenant with mankind when he promised to send the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Of course, speaking about a human-born Savior who would eventually overcome Satan and sin and death and all that had happened in the garden. Now that's going to become an important promise when we speak about Abraham. Because Abraham had that in his mind when God said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham knew that is going to terminate on Jesus Christ, that promise. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with this man called Abraham. And in terms of this covenant, he made Abraham certain promises. Uh, In Genesis 12, if you turn the clock back, God had broken into the life of this man named Abraham and he had called him out of the land in which he was living, Ur of the Chaldeans. And he had graciously made certain promises to this man, Abraham. He'd said, if you will leave your country, leave your father's house, leave your family, and then go to the land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, I will be with you, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. I will multiply your descendants, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then later on he says, to your seed I will give the land of Canaan. We don't have time tonight to go into how all of those promises terminate on Jesus Christ, and they do. Every single one of them is inherited by Christ, and then by us who are in Christ, we inherit them because we're engrafted into Christ. But I do want to just make this point this evening that... God is a God who makes promises. God has made us promises in His Word, and God may have made you promises in your own life. Maybe, and I'm pretty sure this is the case, God has made you promises in this church life. You know, when you felt to come here with just four of you in this room for your first meeting, your heart was bursting with promises. I know it was. And He's going to fulfill those promises, because He's a faithful God. And so that brings us then to the beginning of Genesis chapter 15. All of the conditions of the promises have finally been fulfilled by Abraham. If you follow his life, it actually took him quite a while to be obedient. First he takes his father with him, then he goes to Haran. And they stop there. And if you do the maths on it, he's probably in Haran for 25 years. And then God providentially steps in so that the obedience can continue. What does God do? God brings the death of his father. And then he's liberated from what was holding him in Haran, and then he begins obeying again. He goes to the land of Canaan, but he's still not being 
fully obedient. He's, he's left his father's house. He's left the country he lived in. He's gone to the land that God had shown him, but there's still one thing he hasn't done. God said, leave your family. Leave your extended family. Well, who's he still got with him? He's still got Lot with him. His nephew. And you go and read the, the account. It's fascinating how there's just silence from God while Abram is still being disobedient. And every time there's a step of obedience in the right direction, suddenly God speaks to Abram again. And we see that at the end of Genesis 13 when Abram eventually separates from Lot. Again, it was God's providential, gracious working in his life that did separate them. He caused enmity between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. And they were fighting to the point where they couldn't live together anymore. And so they split. And of course Lot took the land of Sodom and Abram took the high land. And then all the conditions of the covenant had been fulfilled by Abram. And then we reach Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. That takes us to where we are now. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. If you read the immediate verses prior to that, you will see that what has just happened is that Abram has encountered five kings in a battle to try to recover Lot and a whole lot of people from the city of Sodom. And Abram takes, I think it was 300 odd of his servants, and he goes and he he makes war, and God gives him victory in that war, and they come back with all the spoils of war, and with all of the people that have been taken captive, and he has recovered a lot. And Abram does two, uh, well he does one very strange thing, he he refuses to lay his hand on any of the the bounty that was captured in in that battle. And he says to the king of Sodom who comes and bows down before him, I will make your name great was one of the promises. He bows down before me. He says to him, uh, the king of Sodom says, you take all the money, just give us our women and children, give us our people back. And Abram says, no, I won't take anything from you, lest you say that that I made Abraham rich. You will not take the glory for the blessing of God in my life. What a man of faith Abram was. And it is in the context of that, he's just defeated, you know, these armies. He's refused to take the boundary, the bounty that God now breaks into his life again and gives him two promises. First of all, he says, do not be afraid because I am your shield. There was a danger here that Abram would begin to fear a retribution from these kings. These five kings could muster huge armies and come against Abram, just wipe him out. Now what's the danger there? The danger is that Abraham might leave the land of Canaan and go back to Ur of the Chaldeans to try to escape. And that cannot, that must not happen. Why not? Because God wanted to save you. That's why not. Because God's plan of salvation has never changed. There was an unfolding plan of redemption that was going on already here. And the end of this plan was the birth of Jesus Christ in the land of Canaan. Because God needed to to separate a people from out of all the nations of the earth. And over a thousand year period begin to reveal His nature to them. Begin to reveal what substitutionary atonement, the killing the slaying of blood of animals with the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. All of that had to be taught 
in space and time to a people so that they could become a womb for the Messiah. So that Jesus could come and be received while he was coming. And so this is incredibly important. Abram must stay in the land of Canaan so that it will become the place of the people of God. So God assures him, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your shield. Do you know that God is your shield? Do you know that? (coughs) You know, the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. I know people who have left this country because it's unsafe. I don't judge those who do that. Maybe they've had a terrible experience with crime in this country. I'm not here to judge anyone. But I'm here to encourage you. You seek the Lord. And you do do what He's telling you to do. God is your shield. He is able to protect you. Amen. Not only that, but He says, I am your exceedingly great reward. I am your reward. He has just turned down... You know, millions and millions and millions of rams worth of of booty. And he's in fact just tithed 10% of whatever he's gained in the preceding period. He's just tithed on it to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ. In fact, he's given money away in the last, in the preceding verses, and God comes and says to him, I'm your exceedingly great reward. You know that God is your exceedingly great reward. Not money. Now, if I was a prosperity preacher, which I'm not, I'm a conservative reformed preacher, but if I was a prosperity preacher, I would draw a very close uh, parallel between the preceding verses where Abram tithes to Melchizedek and then God says to him, I am your exceedingly great reward. That could be twisted because God is not speaking about financial blessing when he says, I am your exceedingly great reward. He's not saying money is your exceedingly great reward or flocks and herds, although he might give him that. But what is the exceedingly great reward? I am. Have you come to a point in your Christian life where you are utterly and totally convinced that Jesus Christ himself is worth more than all the money in this world can buy? He is the treasure. Elect, precious, the Bible calls him. He is our exceedingly great reward. You know that God will always meet your needs. The Bible says, uh, in fact, Jesus said this, don't store up treasures in heaven. Sorry. <laughs> to edit that out, that's it. <laughs> don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. For where your heart is, there so where your treasure, I'm really butchering this, aren't I? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God is your exceedingly great reward. And uh, He will meet all your needs according to His riches in, in glory by Christ Jesus. That's the promise. Don't waste your life pursuing money and fame and the things of this world. Don't waste your life pursuing popularity and, and, and uh, you know, the next beauty product and the next fancy clothes and the next fancy car and the the bigger house 
and the, you know, if God blesses you with some of these things, blessed be His name. The Bible says He gives us richly all things to enjoy. This is a matter of a heart we're talking about here. Check your heart this evening. Is God your exceedingly great reward? That's what He said to Abraham. Now this brings us to the second uh, little section in this conversation where Abram now responds to God. God has said to him, I am your shield. Yes, I am safe in your care. I believe it. I'll stay. And he did. I am your exceedingly great reward. Yes, Lord, I know you are. And I will not seek the wealth of this world. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, there's a wonderful testimony about our father Abraham. It said he counted himself as a stranger. That he was looking to the city who had, that which has foundations. Not this tent that he lived in and traveled around the land of Canaan living in a tent. He was looking to the city that has foundations. You know that this is not your home. While you are in this world, you are dwelling in a tent. There is a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And it is in that better country, that heavenly country, which we see afar off and we receive by faith. You will live here, if you're lucky, maybe 80 years. You will live there where you have stored up riches through works of obedience and works of faith. You will live there for billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years. If you were to look at the stars of the sky and every single star in the sky you multiplied by a billion years, it still couldn't contain how long you will live in heaven. Take off the spectacles of this world and put on the spectacles of the Bible. How foolish we are when we run around and chase after the things of this world. And I would also caution you, my brother, my sister, if you are here this evening and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you've never committed your life to the Lord Jesus in a genuine act of repentance and faith, if Jesus is not your Lord, entirely your Lord of your life, if that's not you here tonight, you multiply every star in the sky by a billion years and that will not contain the length of time that you will suffer the wrath of God for your sin. You must turn to Christ and seek forgiveness. Then in verse 2 and 3, we see a cry of faith from Abraham. He says, Lord God, what would you give me, seeing I go childless on the air of my house, is Elier of Damascus, the servant of mine. Look, you've given me no offspring. One born in my own house is my heir. Abraham finds himself in, in, a, in, a, in a crossroads, in a, in a crisis of faith. He knows that he, he has these promises of God and he's seen God's faithfulness in his life. But there are still two of the promises that are outstanding. Number one, God said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the dust of the earth. And through that nation of descendants, I will send a human born savior, the seed. Galatians 3.16 says that when, Abraham, when God was speaking to Abraham about the seed, he was actually speaking about Jesus Christ. And Abraham understood that. He knew that God was saying, I will make a nation of you. But more than that, Abraham knew 
This meant that the seed of the woman that they all knew about that had been passed down, father to son, father to son, the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman, Abraham knew that God was telling him, it's through your descendants that I will send this Savior. That's why Abraham was saved by faith. He had faith in Jesus Christ. The the New Testament is categorically clear on that. It says that uh, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was the gospel. And Abraham knew it. And he believed it. But he has a crisis of faith. There was a man once who came to Jesus. He brought his son who was demon-possessed. And this demon-possessed boy, as he came near the Holy One of God, as the demons used to call him, he threw the boy down in their midst and the boy was convulsing. And and, uh, Jesus, I think, uh, seems to indicate that that this boy's condition was something to do with the the error of his father. Somehow his father had played a hand in how this boy had got demon-possessed. Because he says to the the father, how long has he been like this? That's a question for the father's sake, not for his sake. How long has he been like this? And and the father says, oh, since he was a boy, if you can do anything, please heal him. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And then that poor father, he cried the cry of every one of us here tonight. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that your heart's cry sometimes? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. This is where Abraham finds himself. He believes, but there are these two great promises. The one of the seed and the second one of the land. To your seed I will give this land. How can God give this land to his descendants? And how can God send the Messiah, the seed of the woman, through him if he doesn't have any children? God, I'm I'm 85 years old. I'm running out of time. My wife has gone through menopause. She can't have children. Oh God, I I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't have any children, God. How can this happen? And God then steps in and makes a further promise to Abraham to strengthen his faith. Before we make that point explicitly clear. Let's just finish this first point that God makes promises. When you find yourself in a place in life, and many of you are even there tonight in your life, where you feel like God has made you promises, but you don't know where those promises are, and you've been waiting and praying and crying out to God year after year after year, and your heart has been broken By the delay, where are you, God? My heart is breaking, Lord. I do believe, but God, it's so hard to believe. Where are you, God? I want to encourage you. You do what Abraham did. You pour your heart out to God in prayer. You know that it's not a sin to come to God and say, Oh God, what will you give me? You've made me all these promises, but what will you give me? I go childless. How can these promises be fulfilled, oh God? I don't understand. It's not a sin to do that. God wants you to do that. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Pour out your heart before the Lord. You are His child. He loves you. The delay is for your good. He's strengthening your faith, which is more precious than God. 
Pour out your heart to the Lord. When else did you do that? When else did you get alone in your prayer closet and just pour your heart out to God? And my heart is broken. I don't know when you're going to do this, Lord. He'll comfort you. He'll strengthen you. He'll affirm His promises to you. You know, it was still, um, it was still another 15 years before Abraham bore Isaac. Pour your heart out to God and you will find He will give you renewed strength for the journey. And isn't that all that counts in the end? Because that's what the Christian life is. It is a walk of faith. God wants to test your faith. Not only to encourage you and show you that you are His child as your faith begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. It's about personal assurance. But it's also an encouragement to those around you. When when your friends in this church see you going through hardship, 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 but they see a steadfastness in faith, it encourages them. And not only that, it's a witness to unbelievers. How can this person go through such hardship and still have such faith? It boggles the unbelieving mind. And lastly, it is a demonstration, the Bible says, to the principalities and the power and the powers of the heavenly realms of the wisdom of Almighty God. There is an interchange in the heavens that we're not quite sure what's going on. But the Bible does tell us that God points to the church. And he says to the, 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 the fallen principalities and powers, look at what faith looks like. There's more going on than we think there is. You be faithful. Because he will keep his promises to you. I promise you that. So God grants, strengthens and sustains our faith. Here we see that God does that through the giving of his word. So you ask, how will God strengthen my faith? How can I take this broken heart and have it mended up and strengthened by God again? Pour your heart out to God in prayer. Secondly, Apply yourself to what we call a means of grace. The way in which God gets His grace to you is predominantly through His Word. And that's what God now gives Abraham. He says, he, he, He brings him outside and He said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And He said, So shall your descendants be. This one shall not be your heir, Eliezer, but the one which will come from your own body will be your heir. And so shall your descendants be. Just notice that. God doesn't reply to the cries of Abraham by saying, Okay, enough's enough. Sarah, you can have a child now. No. How does he respond to the cry of his saint, the broken, hearted cry? By repeating the promise. That's the Christian life. Your faith in this book is the most important thing in the Christian life. Your faith in the Word of God. Will you, will you have faith in this? Will you believe it? So God encourages him through His Word. He then gives him a sign, external sign, points to the stars. A couple of chapters later, He gives him another sign, circumcision. Um, there's a, there's a few others that you read in there. God is continually repeating the promise to Abraham and then giving him signs by which 
he, he can know that God has made him this promise and God will do the same for you as you pour your heart out to him. And then finally, we see in Genesis 22, after a lifetime of having received the promises and trusted God and, and uh, held on to the promises and had God increase his faith and increase his strength, and the Christian life should look like that. Stumbling, and, and, but being strengthened and conformed to Christ year after year after year. Because God will not leave you the way you are. And the more we apply ourselves to His Word, and the more we commit to local church, and the more we spend time in prayer, and the more we gather around each other and encourage each other in our holy faith, all of these things that God has put in place in the church, you will grow and grow and grow to the point where you will take your son, your only son Isaac, and you will sacrifice him on an altar, believing that God will raise him from the dead even if you kill him. That's where God wants you to be. Doesn't want you to be rich, doesn't want all of that stuff. That's not what God's about. He's about strengthening your faith. Embrace it. Embrace this life. That's what it's about. And it requires hardship. It does. It requires testing of our faith. But my brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you endure various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The peaceable fruit of righteousness from the discipline of God. Embrace it. To this we are called. And the Bible says we will shine like stars for eternity. What a promise. So God grants, strengthens and sustains our faith by his promises. And then lastly, God justifies sinners by faith alone, not by works. And we see that in verse 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. Why do we need to be credited with righteousness? Well, the Bible says that we have sinned, every one of us. Not only have we sinned personally, but from the moment of our birth, we are already guilty. We are guilty in Adam. Because the sin of Adam is imputed to every one of Adam's descendants. It's called original sin. And we bear it from the moment of our birth. We are a corrupt, rebellious race of people. And the Bible says that God's wrath abides upon us. That is why we need someone to credit righteousness to us. Because we are born sinful in nature and all we do is sin more and more and more throughout our lives. That doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. In God's common grace, He does restrain evil. But that is no commendation of you to Him. The Bible says if you want to stand on the day of judgment before a righteous and holy God who is entirely just and who will not pardon transgressors, the Bible says... You must receive forgiveness. Have you, have you had that? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? How can your sins be forgiven? This is what we learn in Abraham. You cannot do anything good 
to earn forgiveness. It is not by works of righteousness. Abraham wasn't even circumcised at this point. He hadn't even received the covenant sign yet. And and yet he believed and God accounted it as righteousness. Have you believed? Because of all the promises that God has made us as human beings, the greatest promise came in the new covenant. Where God says this, I sent my only son to shed his blood to pay for your sinfulness. He died where you should have died. He was judged and crushed and bruised for your iniquities. And the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And after God had crushed him for the sins of his elect, he raised him from the dead. And if you want to have your part in that forgiveness, just as you were imputed with Adam's sinfulness and guilt is given to you, you're guilty already. It's imputed to you, is the word. In the same way, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you simply say, Jesus, I am a sinner, forgive me. The Bible says that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. And you are no longer now in Adam. You are now in Christ. And you are clothed in His righteousness. Have you believed? Have you grasped Jesus Christ by faith and been forgiven? If not, I encourage you to come today. Come with nothing in your hands. Come with a humble heart and with a prayer of repentance. And ask Jesus Christ to wash you clean anymore. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we love and worship you, God. Lord, you had no compulsion upon you to enter into relationship with us. Lord, we rebelled against you. And every one of us have personally rebelled against you, God. And yet it pleased you to set your love on us before time even began. And my God, it pleased you to send your own Son to be brutalized for us, that we might be forgiven. Oh God, how could we ever thank you for such a great sacrifice, Lord? Lord, we thank you for the many promises that you've made us, the promises of the gospel and the promises that you've made into each of our hearts in our own lives, Lord. I thank you for the promises that you've made to low in this church, my God. I pray that you strengthen their faith tonight, O God. Sustain their faith in all the promises that you've made, that they might be more like Christ, that they might walk with their heads held high, with joy in the Holy Spirit. And then, God, I want to pray for those here who do not know you as Savior. I pray that you would open their hearts. Do what only you can do. Bring the new birth to people here tonight. That they might repent and believe, God, that Jesus was given not not just for the sins of people, but for their sins. Let people grasp you by faith tonight, God. All to the glory of your name, Father. And we pray in your Son's name indeed. Amen.